Good morning, everybody. Once again, it's a privilege to be able to stand before you and bring you the word of God. Um, You don't have to worry. We're not going to go through every single verse. I know some of you were nervous. Um, But we are continuing in our series in 1 Samuel. And if you remember, in the beginning, we talked about some overarching themes that run through, well, really the whole Bible, but in particular through the book of 1 Samuel that we're looking at. And the number one theme that we talked about was the sovereignty of God, how God has all the power and God does what he wants the way he wants to. But number two, we talked about the difference between the heart of man and the heart of God. Right? As we go through these books in the Old Testament, as we read through 1 Samuel, we could find God and ourselves. It shows us who we are. It shows us who God really is. And it shows us our great need for him because of who we are and because of who he is. And once again today, we're going to see these same things come into play. And as we find God in our passage today, I want us to see how he sovereignly works in all circumstances for good. How he does what we can't do. Because think about what we do. Think about what man does. Think about what we saw last week, right? The Israelites tried to use God for their own ends. They tried to get God to work their way, to get into that battle with the Philistines, and they lose. So they say, aha, let's go take the ark from where God said it should stay, but let's go get it and bring it with us, and God will bring us victory. They, they use the ark like a, a, a good luck charm. They use it like, like, like a token or an icon that gave them strength, like God was going to empower them to do what they wanted to do just because the ark was with them. And we saw their way didn't work very well. They were defeated at the hand of the Philistines, and worse, they lost the ark. And like we saw with Eli and his sons, like we talked about the history of Israel up to this point, we talked about the condition of the priesthood at this point in time, the worship of Israel, almost everything was wrong. Why? Because Israel was doing things their way. But as we've seen, God decided he was going to set things right. He was going to do for his people what they couldn't do for themselves, because that's what our God does. Now, he had already begun to do that by removing the priesthood, the wicked priesthood, and placing Samuel in a position to be priest, to be prophet, to be judge in Israel. He took care of the most important in-house problem already. Well, now we're going to see God begin to take care of the greatest outward problem, these annoying Philistines that we see throughout the Old Testament. At the end of chapter 4, well, it looked like the Philistines had won, right? The earthly circumstances were not very good, For Israel. But very often, we interpret our own circumstances completely wrong. Why? Because God is always, always at work to carry out his sovereign and good will. He has a plan and he's going to carry it out through all things. And we saw him actually begin to do that at the last chapter, not by giving Israel victory. He sort of set things right by giving Israel defeat. We saw they lost tens of thousands of men. They lost the ark. The glory had left Israel. Everything was going according to God's plan. And today we read in 1 Samuel 5, picking up right from there, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Let's talk a little more about Dagon. As Pastor Dave told us last week, Dagon was this half-man, half-fish god. If we can get the picture of him up there. There's Dagon. 
Dagon worship has a long history. He was worshipped as early as the 3rd millennium B.C. in Mesopotamia. Sargon the Great credited Dagon for his conquest of northern Mesopotamia. We have found Amorite texts that speak of Dagon as one of their chief deities. Hammurabi of Babylon claimed it was the power of Dagon that gave him military victory. This was the Dagon that was the god of the Philistines. And he was believed to be the god of fertility, both human fertility and the fertility of the land. So we see when the Philistines captured Samson, as we talked about last week also, about 40 years before this, they gave Dagon the credit. Judges 16.23, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And nothing even here. If you know the story of Samson that Pastor Dave referred to last week, God overcame the Philistines then, not by giving his people victory, but by giving them defeat. Because God truly uses all circumstances to achieve his will. No matter how it looks to us, God is good and God is in control. And here we are again. God has now handed his people defeat at the hand of the Philistines, and they give Dagon the credit. So when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was customary to take the, the gods of the idols of your defeated enemy and present them to your own god because people believed that their victory over another people was really their god's victory over the gods of the other people. So in this case, Israel brings the ark into battle. You know, it was a representation of God's presence, and because they were defeated, the Philistines take their idol, which is how they treated it, and present it to Dagon. I mean, don't miss the fact that Israel was acting just like all the other nations around them here. And realize that when ancient peoples like the Philistines made statues or, or idols of gods like Dagon, okay, I know... They're not modern people, but they weren't dumb enough to actually think that the idols they made with their own hands were gods. They believed the god was a real god, and the idol or the statue was just a physical representation of the god. And they believed that god might place his presence in my idol or statue that I make of him. So they'd make the idol, they'd pray to their god, and then hopefully he'd make his presence with them in the man-made vessel. And really, this is exactly the same thing God did with the ark, isn't it? You have the ark made with the mercy seat, the cherubim above it. It was supposed to be a representation of his presence, and then he actually placed his presence there. You know, God used a lot of already recognized customs and forms of worship when he revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament. But there are big differences. Like, whereas all the other nations would make their vessel and call their God to them and really hope that he would come and reveal himself, God revealed himself to his people. He commanded the ark be made. He placed his presence there, and then he called his people unto him. I mean, that's amazing. God brought his presence to his people and then called them to him. But Israel treated the ark no differently than the Philistines would have treated their statue of Dagon. See, they thought they could bring their idol in and call God to them there, and, and he would come. But that's not how the true God works, is it? And so Israel was defeated, and the Philistines credited Dagon. Dagon had conquered the God of Israel in their minds. This is what we saw last week. Remember, when they, when they went into battle, uh, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? 
And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a god has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. See, the Philistines, their battle with Israel was a battle of the gods. So to them, their victory over Israel was Dagon's victory over Yahweh. So back to Dagon for a moment. You know, in the lore of Dagon, he is the supreme deity for a couple different civilizations, but he's said to be subservient to only one god. Really very similar to the story of, of Baal in, in Canaanite lore. They are both subject to a supreme god whose name is El, E-L. And that is the name of God used in our Bible, usually when combined with descriptions of his attributes like El Shaddai, God Almighty, or, or El Elyon, God Most High. Now, why is all this important? Well, in order to understand what's really going on in our passage today, we need to understand how the Philistines thought things were happening and how Israel thought things were happening and what the Bible says about the spiritual reality behind the physical world. And just to maybe pique your interest that you can maybe bear with me as I explain this, I'm going to tell you right up front that to the Philistines and to the Israelites and according to the Bible, Dagon was real. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't made up. He wasn't a statue. He was what the Bible calls a god. He was a real divine being. Now, before you run me out of Montclair with pitchforks and torches, let me explain. And if you're part of our Tuesday Revelation study, this is going to be old news to you, so please bear with me. Now, when God created man, man, God, and angels dwelt together in the Garden of Eden. And that's why when Satan came up to Eve and started talking to her, it wasn't this big deal to her. There were angels all over the place in Eden. Eve wasn't freaked out that, that this, this thing started talking to her. And God tells man when he created us, here's your job. Be fruitful and multiply and go fill the earth. We were to spread our perfect image of God over all the earth. We were to expand the garden over the whole earth. And God, man, and angel would have dwelt together forever. But we know one of those angels, Satan, sinned against God. And then he convinced man to join in in his rebellion against God. And then, because sin becomes the norm, God just destroys man with the flood and tells just these few survivors that he picks, we're going to start over. You're going to go, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. But sin is still the norm. And of course, instead of obeying God and going to fill the earth, sinful man comes together in one place in Babel, and they try to get to heaven themselves. They, they, they try to regain for themselves what they lost their way. So what does God do? God separates man over the whole earth. They wouldn't do it, so he did. But what God is doing at that point is he's saying to man, okay, fine, have it your way. You do it your way, I'm done with you. And God disinherits man at that point. He throws them into all these nations, and he tells the angels, they're your problem now. And out of the whole world, God calls one man to build one nation to be his. He had one nation he wanted for himself, and that is Israel. But then we have angels over charge of the rest of the world. We read this in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High 
gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind, this is the Babel event, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And of course, the sons of God in the Bible are angels. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is allotted heritage. In short, God sends the nations away, puts angels over all of them, and just chooses for himself one nation. And, and while the Bible is silent on exactly how and exactly when, these heavenly beings over the nations join Satan in his rebellion, and us in our rebellion against God. So when Israel was called by God, the rest of the world was given over to these angels. Every nation was allotted their own gods, and the Bible calls these, being, these beings gods. And Israel was told, don't worship these other gods. When God says, don't worship other gods, it's not a metaphor. He says, don't worship these other gods. He says, if you disobey me on this, you will wind up losing me, you will wind up losing the land. And they eventually do. As God tells them they're going to in Deuteronomy 29. He says, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he, meaning God, had not allotted to them. And the book of Deuteronomy and the New Testament explained to us that these gods are demons. They're rebellious angels. So Dagon, like Baal or Molech or Bel or any of these gods we read about in the Old Testament, they're not made up. Dagon is a demon. A heavenly being literally in charge of a territory of the Philistines because God made it so. And we need to know that to understand what's happening here because this is a spiritual battle between gods. And Yahweh is going to prove to Israel, who didn't know, prove to the Philistines, who didn't know, and prove to all the other gods that he is the true God, that he is El Shaddai, that he is El Elyon, that he is the sovereign, all-powerful God of the whole creation, man and angel alike. And no matter how we, man, distorts this truth, no matter how man treats the one and only God like an idol, no matter what our circumstances may lead us to believe, only God is God. And God is in control. And he is working all things for his purposes. So let's see how he does that. First, he shows Dagon, who really has the power. Starting in verse 2, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So the Philistines here take the idol of the Israelites into Dagon's temple and they present it to him, right? You gave us victory over this God and now he's here to serve you. But here's the thing. Maybe the Philistines didn't know. Dagon knows who Yahweh is. Dagon knows that he is God Almighty. Dagon knows that he is God Most High. And while we read this and think, well, maybe it's just a case of God using this physical object to prove a point, I don't think that's the case. I think Dagon, 
the actual demon god of the Philistines, knows who he's dealing with, and he does what we see demons do in the New Testament, right? He falls down before God most high. And like Legion said to Christ, said, I beg you, do not torment me. Dagon knows who's subservient to who here. So he literally, along with symbolically with the statue, he bows before God. Because only God is God. And the Philistines find their idol face down before the God of Israel, and they put him back in the place they think he deserves, the place of prominence. And the next day, Dagon has bowed himself before Yahweh yet again. But now Dagon's head and hands are removed and lying on the threshold of a temple. What God is doing here is starting to set things right. Like he's been doing since the moment sin entered the world. And just like God revealed himself to Israel, who he called as his own, through his salvation, here he reveals himself to the Philistines through judgment. And just like God cleansed his temple of the unworthy priests, God cleanses this temple. Just like God ordained that Eli should face judgment, and he fell over and broke his neck. Here, God is delivering judgment by breaking the neck of Dagon. And it was customary in the ancient Near East that when a king would conquer his enemy, he would take the head and hands of some of the fallen to signify that they have been totally eliminated. The idea is that they are forgotten through defeat. They're unidentifiable without their head and their hands. Their memory would be wiped out from the face of the earth. That's the idea. Here, God has defeated an enemy. Not a man, but a false god, a demon. And he's shown who reigns supreme. He's shown who has the power to utterly defeat who. And there the head and the hands are on the threshold of the temple. Why on the threshold of the temple? Well, we read throughout the Bible, as the way it was then, the threshold of a dwelling, the main doorway into somewhere, signaled the separation for what was holy unto your God and what was not, right? When you break the threshold whether going into the temple or, or in the homes of God's people in the Old Testament, you went from unholy territory into holy territory. Just like the blood of the lamb was on the doorway to protect the holy people during the judgment of the unholy. Just like God told his people to write the law and put it on your gates of your towns and put them on the doorways into your homes. Why? People needed to know they were entering into a holy place when they were among God's people. We see in the book of Ezekiel, he sees God's glory leave the temple, and what happens? It goes from over the ark to the threshold, so God can say, I'm breaking the threshold now, and then the glory leaves. When Ezekiel sees the glory come into the new temple, the glory of God comes from the east, rests on the threshold, and then takes his place back over the ark. See, the doorway is a spiritual threshold that signifies the presence of God. Here, in the temple of Dagon, these remnants of a defeated Dagon are sitting on the threshold because God is showing the Philistines, hey guys, your God has left the building. I'm the only God here. Dagon has been defeated. God proves that Dagon, the demon god of the Philistines, is really powerless before the true God. As Moses sang, when he saw such a display of power at the Exodus, he says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer, Moses, is no one. God shows again and again and again that he is the only God. There are no gods like our God. Amen? He still shows today there are no gods like our God. And that's what he showed Dagon here. And now God's going to show 
the men of the Philistines that he has power. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So now God strikes the people themselves. And you know what? They know what's going on. They know by what happened with that statue. They know now Dagon's been defeated and Yahweh has turned his attention to them. And it's not good. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So what do they do? Oh, they just kick the can down the road, right? I'm going to make this someone else's problem. I just want God to be out of here. And the people of Ashdod send the ark to Gath. These are two of the five cities of the Philistines. And what happens in Gath? But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of a city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they send the ark to Ekron. It's another one of the five cities. And they say, they have brought around to us the ark of God, of the God of Israel, to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of a city went up to heaven. So, you know, the rulers of the Philistines come together and say, okay, guys, listen, enough's enough. Let's stop messing around. Let's send the ark back to Israel. God's killing us off. He's given us these tumors. Let's send him back. And note, we're told twice that the punishment of a tumor has affected the men of the Philistines. That'll be important in a minute. So now the Philistines are panicked. They just want this God of Israel out of their territory and back in his, right? He's proven his power over God. He's proven his power over them. They need a plan. Chapter 6, verse 2, when the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. See, they call their holy men, their priests and their prophets. They said, what do we do? How do we send this back so, so God stops this? And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. <clears throat> then you will be healed, healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not turned away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Those are the five cities. For the same plague was on all you and your lords. So you must take images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. So notice a few things. God, as we saw, was killing off some of the Philistines. And we see this plague was spreading via mice, which has happened more than a few times throughout history. So like pagans would do, they made images of these mice because when they were afflicted by something, they would make an image of whatever it was that was afflicting them, made out of precious metals, and offer it to their god to ask them to appease, to, to appease the god, to ask them to remove the affliction from them. So they were doing this to Yahweh. This was their attempt to appease this god of Israel. They wanted him to stop the plague. But we see those who God did not kill, men, we're told, were struck with tumors. And here, in addition to the images of mice, they are to make golden images of the tumors to try and appease God and have him remove them from them. Now, have you ever read through this and wondered what a golden tumor might look like? I mean, think about it. What would that look like? Well, there's a play on words happening here. Let's talk about these tumors for a minute. The word here is translated tumor is used to translate things in, in the ancient Near East like tumor, boil, hemorrhoid, abscess, all wonderful things, right? 
It refers to any protruding skin ailment because the word simply means a bulge or a protrusion. The word is used in ancient writings to talk about hills and mountains and sometimes even towers. But it was also used euphemistically to refer to the male reproductive organ. So what's going on here? Well, remember what the Philistines said about the tumors. They said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. See, God had already defeated the God of the Philistines. He symbolized the utter destruction of him by the removal of the head and the hands, signaling Dagon will be remembered no more on the face of the earth. Now he was striking the people. And they're not just worried about the disease. They're not just worried about these tumors. They're worried about being utterly wiped out as a people. So these tumors or boils or whatever they were were affecting men, but not just men. They were affecting a specific part of the man's body. And the golden images they made to appease God were not the tumors. They were images of the affected body part. And archaeological digs all over, as recently as in the 1990s, in Ashkelon, one of the cities of the Philistines, they found idols of the male reproductive organ in a temple, because according to the writings, men would do this so that their god would grant them fertility. Now remember, Dagon was the god of fertility. And the Philistines now are in a panic. Why? Their fertility god has been defeated, and now the God of Israel has taken away their fertility. You see what God's doing here? Yahweh's saying, hey guys, Dagon's no God. There's only one who has power over life, and that's me. He's showing them that it is his power alone to give life and withhold life, to let them live or let them die as a people. Just as God sovereignly granted Hannah the ability to have children, he sovereignly takes that away from the men of the Philistines. So giving back the ark of God was a matter of life and death for the Philistine people. They did not want their memory wiped out from the face of the earth like God symbolized the head and the hands of Dagon. So they're going to make these offerings that they would normally give to their God, but they're saying, no, Yahweh, these are now for you. You win. You are God most high. As the priest said, they said, you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians? And Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away and they departed? See, the Philistines knew the deal. Everyone knew the deal. They knew what the, what the God of Israel had done in Egypt. We saw, they already said when the ark came in, though, this represents that, that God that destroyed Egypt. He's the one who sent the plagues, and now they're seeing plagues. And they realize, wow, our gods, our idols, have no more power against Yahweh than the Egyptian gods did. As God said to Israel in the Exodus, he said he would send a final plague he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. It's a spiritual battle. And now, this is happening to Dagon and the Philistines. They need to appease God somehow. But the priests actually want to make sure they're interpreting these events correctly. All right, They, they, they had some wisdom here. Verse 7, they said, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, of which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. 
Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that this is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So the priests want to make absolutely sure that they're interpreting this right. So, guys, maybe we're in our own heads here. Maybe this isn't this Yahweh God at all. So they take the ark, and they take their offering, and they take two milk cows and yoke them together to send the ark back. So these were milk cows. These weren't beasts of burden. They weren't plow cattle. These cows made cows and made milk. That's what they did. And here they take two that have calves. They have babies. And they take the babies away from them. And they put a yoke on them, which these cows had never had to do before. And they wanted to send the ark back that way. Why? Well, because any female mammal, moms in this room, you know, any female mammal would just instinctively do one thing. Take care of her babies. These cows would not just leave their babies. And these cows have never been yoked. They wouldn't just walk calmly down the road back to Israel. No, cows have to get used to a yoke. You have to train them to plow fields wearing a yoke. So by all rights, these two cows, under any and every normal circumstance, would be brought together and be yoked, and they would fight like heck to get out of that yoke and get back to their babies. Under no natural circumstances would they calmly leave and abandon their babies. But these are supernatural circumstances. Verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. These two cows do what they would normally never do. They leave their babies. They walk yoked together. Like it's their day job. I mean, they just walk and head straight for where the priest said they were going to go. See, what Yahweh's doing here again is he's showing the Philistines, guys, I'm sovereign over everything. Animals, man, gods, demons. I'm sovereign over you, he says. I'm sovereign over your gods and your cows. Everything. And in his sovereign power, what did God do? He undid what sinful man did. Because that's his heart for man. Man treated God like the nations treat their gods. They treated the ark like the nations treated their idols. And Israel lost the ark. They lost the presence of God. Right? The glory had left Israel. So God made it right. God made it right the way he always makes things right. He comes to his people himself. And the Israelites see the ark and they rejoice. They use the wood from the box that was carrying those golden images. They set it on fire. They offer the cows as a burnt offering to God. The glory is back. The Philistines see this. They say, thank God. Thanks, Yahweh. And they go back home. All was right with the world again, right? Eh, not so much. Verse 19. And he, meaning God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Israel got the ark back. God saw to that himself. But we see they haven't learned a thing. Remember, they treated God and the ark like other nations, like the Philistines would treat their gods and their idols. And then here they offer burnt offerings to God in a way and in a place 
that God did not approve. Right? All of this is to be done in the tabernacle where the presence of God dwell, where they should have left the ark to begin with. And God does, in fact, forbid in Numbers 4 for people to even look on the ark under penalty of death. And here, God stands by his word. So it was punishment on the men of Israel for everything they were doing. They treated the ark like an idol. They sacrificed the God their own way. They treated God like the other nations treated their gods. So what does God do? Well, he treats them like the nations. He struck the Philistines, and now he strikes Israel. See, God treating Israel like the nations, we're going to see it happen more and more and more. It's a recurring theme in the Old Testament, because Israel acting like the nations is a recurring theme more and more and more. And like we see here, they offer God what they want, their way, and he punishes them like he punishes the Philistines. And what is Israel's reaction? They do exactly what the Philistines did. They just want to kick the can down the road and get God's presence away from them. Verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So we sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirath-Jerim saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Just the Philistines. Get God out of our city. We don't want him here. Make it someone else's problem. We see already how Israel, they would rather be like the nations around them than act like God's chosen people. We're already seeing how their worship started to tend towards false worship rather than the worship God commands. Think about it. The Philistines recognize God's hand of judgment on them. They don't repent. They just want to be rid of God. Israel did the same exact thing. They don't repent. They didn't worship God his way. They would rather that he just go away. And we're already seeing the result. God removes his presence from them. Chapter 7, And the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From David the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So we're seeing some patterns established here. We've already seen and we'll keep seeing Israel wants to do things their way. We've already seen and we'll continue to see Israel would rather be like the nations around them, like the world, than God's people. And we'll see more and more God's judgment of Israel for their failure to obey him. We'll see more and more God threaten to remove his presence from them permanently if they don't honor him and worship him his way. And if we're looking, we will see more and more through it all, God is working out his plan of salvation for us. Through highs and lows, through times of revival in Israel and times of near apostasy, through good godly leaders through wicked kings. Because God works out all things. Hear me. God works out all things to save people that would rather go their own way. That's what he does. And I'm so thankful that that's what he does. So we see, once again, in this passage, we see man's heart and we see God's heart. The heart of man wants to go his own way. I often want to go my own way. That's what man's heart does, right? I want to do things my way. 
We've seen throughout the book so far. We saw it last week in how Israel used the ark. We see it here in how they again treat God when the ark returns. That reflects their heart towards God. The ark is not an idol. It was a gift of God to his people to represent his presence. And Israel abused what God gave them and did what they wanted. We see it with the Philistines, right? These man-made worship of demons. These were deceived people. The Philistines were religious, but they didn't know the true God because they'd rather worship their way. They worshiped what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. And even when the true God showed up, they just wanted him to go away. See, even though he reveals himself so clearly, still the heart of man just wants him to go away. God, leave me to my own devices. Let me do it my way. That's the heart of man. But then we see God's heart. God's heart is for us. Like, like Dave said last week, he's better to us than we are to ourselves. So God's heart leads him to do what man can't do. Right? Israel lost the ark. They were defeated by the Philistines doing things their way. So what does God do? This is my people. I'll defeat the Philistines. I'll defeat the Philistines' gods. I'll bring the ark back myself like we see so many times. Man couldn't do it, so God did. Because God's heart for man is to make things right where we've gone wrong. A wicked priesthood replaced by God with a righteous one. We'll see later in the book, God will replace wicked leadership with godly leadership and lead his people back to him. That's what our God does. Because his heart is for us. His heart is for man, and he uses every circumstance in this world to save people who would rather go their own way. Isn't that amazing? And as we see here, even in defeat, God gives victory. God here allowed fallen man to do things his way and fall to the enemy, just like he did in the garden. But God uses man's defeat as a path to victory. Just like God won victory over Dagon and the sinful Philistines through defeat there, so he defeated Satan and defeated sin and defeated death. How? Through the physical defeat of one sinless man on a cross. And he used, literally, think about it, God used the most horrible event in human history to win his greatest victory. And he did it for us. And he did it like he always does. He came to us. God brought the glory to us. He placed his presence among us, not in a vessel made of gold, but in weak human flesh. And then he allowed himself to fall in physical defeat and use it to overcome the world. God sets things right. And, like he's done for the very beginning, he calls us to him. He comes to us and calls us to him. See, brothers and sisters, God has done everything. He has revealed himself to us as he truly is. He has revealed himself to us as El Shaddai. He has all the power. 
And in his sovereign power, he gave himself for our sins. He is El Elyon, God most high. He is exalted. He is glorified. He is the reigning king. And he stepped down to become one of us. As I said, God has been setting things right from the moment sin entered the world. He was during the failures and the successes of Israel. He did it ultimately in Jesus Christ. He will yet do it completely and finally when we see our Lord face to face and our faith becomes sight. And until then, well, here we are. And God is doing it through us. That was his plan all along. God worked it to be this way. So here's my question today. We see how Israel, called by God, would rather be like the nations than God's chosen people. We see how those he called didn't live according to the calling of God Most High. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he wasn't Most High to them. A lot of other things were. So as I ask you this morning, consider, what's Most High to you? Is it what this world has to offer? Is it being more like the people around us than being what God has called us to be? Is our own way most high to us, our own plans? Or is it him? The sovereign God of the universe who came as one of us to do what we couldn't do. Who came to set right what we made wrong. So I'm going to ask you this morning, Christian, if you've been going your own way, never forget, God is still God. His heart is still for us. And he is willing and very able to set things right. You know why? Because we can't do it. So I'm going to ask you right where you are just to bow. Brothers and sisters, if there's anywhere where you've been going your own way, even something that you wish you could stop going your own way, God's ready to set it right. Just surrender it to him. And if you're here today, and you don't know God as he truly is, you've been going your own way. Well, God's calling you this morning. And he's ready to set things right. You just need to give yourself unto him. And let him do what he does. And he will come to you. And he will call you unto himself. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I like going my own way, God. All too often I prefer that over, well, everything, honestly. And I know I'm not alone, God. Your word reveals our heart to us. So God, I pray today I pray, set things right.
Take the parts of us, God, that we're withholding from you because we want our own way. Lord, just take them. Fill our hearts with more of you. Give us ears to hear your call. Give us a mind to understand who you are. You are God most high. You are God all-powerful. You are the God who gave everything for us. So now, God, just take everything that we're not giving to you, Lord. Set things right. Make us what you want us to be, what you've called us to be. God, we are your people and you are our God. So Lord, we bow before you today. We surrender to you today, God, because there is none like you. None like you. You alone are God. Be our God. Save this morning, God. Call us all unto you. We pray in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.